If you have your copy of the scriptures, turn with, you, with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 12. So this morning I'm going to read this whole chapter, um, and we're going to look at this chapter together. So before I read, I want to remind you of the four preliminary principles that you have to have down, that you have to be at least wrestling with, preferably convicted about, in order to understand this book. So these four preliminary principles are really, really important. We spent the month of January thinking about them together. And the first one is this. God always completes what he starts. The way God set up the world is the way the world will be. Your rebellion and my rebellion cannot stop the way God has set up the world. And Revelation, the point of Revelation is to tell us again, God always finishes what he starts. Second, if you're going to understand Revelation, you have to think about time the way God thinks about time. So in the New Testament, we find this, that the last days started with the coming of Jesus. So the book of Revelation is, does not start to tell us about the last days. If we want to find out about the last days, we don't jump to Revelation and think, oh, this is the book that begins to tell us about the last days. No, the witness of the New Testament is that the last days started with the coming of Christ. We have been living in the last days for 2,000 years. And if you don't get that nailed down, then you're going to have a tendency to come to the book of Revelation and think that it's just meant to tell us about the last days and we're supposed to see things in some type of chronological order and that's not what the book is about. It's not written that way. Third, there are some things we know and some things we don't. So the third principle is this. We have to come to the book of Revelation with a posture of humility. We have to come with a posture of humility. There's some things we know and some things we don't. In other words, the book of Revelation is not a code book. It is not a code to be cracked so that the smartest people get down to the most granular detail and therefore they unlock the meaning of Revelation for us. Revelation is not a code book. It is a picture book. It is meant to be read like children. It is, we are supposed to act like children when we read it. We're supposed to take in the images that are in Revelation and it's supposed to fire up our gospel imagination. It is not code. It's picture. It's a picture book. Fourth and finally, this one perhaps is most important. Jesus actually accomplished something in his death and resurrection. He did it. Jesus is a literal savior. He didn't die to make salvation possible. He didn't die to make you savable. He is a literal savior that actually defeated death and Satan himself through the de his death and resurrection. So we are not waiting for Jesus to begin to rule sometime in the future. He started ruling right after he died rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. He's been sitting at the right hand of God for 2,000 years. He's been reigning for 2,000 years. And if you don't think Jesus actually accomplished something, you will give far more attention to the work of evil in the world than you should. 
You'll think that darkness has far more power than it does. You'll be distracted and look to that, evil and darkness, rather than to Christ and the fact that he is victorious and the fact that he is ruling and reigning even now. And that doesn't minimize sin and evil. It just puts it in its proper place. Make sense? So without those four preliminary principles, we are destined to misinterpret Revelation. So with that said, let's jump in. I'm going to read this whole chapter to you. So listen to this. And you might recognize this chapter a little bit. Even if it's weird when I read it, my hunch is you will probably hear some of this and think, wait a minute, I know what this is talking about. And let me tell you, you're right. You're right. But we'll see. Listen to this. Revelation 12. This is God's word. This is God's word. The sermon's going to go down right after I finish reading this. This is as good as it's going to get right here. Reading God's word aloud. Listen to this. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus.' 
and he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, those of you that have your Bibles open, that last phrase could actually be translated this way as well. And I stood on the side of the sea. And verse, chapter 13, verse 1 begins with, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea or the water. You notice that? So just so you know, 12 and 13 and following are connected, but we're just looking at chapter 12 this morning. And we should pray, right? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Even though, Lord, there is perhaps things that we recognize in this story today, there's probably other things that we don't understand, and maybe we won't understand. But Lord, we ask again and again that you would bring us back to Christ, that you would keep us from coming to worship, because what we're really after is how to get more control. Cause us more and more to come to worship because we want to be more dependent on Christ. Minimize our ability to be dependent on self and maximize our desire to want to be dependent on Christ, on you, on the Spirit. For your glory I pray. Amen. All right, a couple things. One, get out a fresh canvas, all right? I've said this to you every week. You got a fresh canvas out because we're about to paint some images on it, all right? Let's get ready to paint together, draw together. We're going to draw some images here that are for us. Before we do that, I want to tell you a story. One summer, I had the job of painting the old hospital in the town in which I lived. I was able to paint it with a few of my friends, but it was our job the entire summer. It took us the whole summer to paint this huge structure. And one day, at the end of uh, doing our painting, it was my responsibility to take the brushes and the buckets and all that stuff and to rinse everything out and get everything clean so that the next day we'd all be ready to go. So I was on the side of the house where the hose was located, and there was a small little side street uh, right there on the side, that side of the house that led up to the major road. So I was on the side of the house, I was rinsing out the brushes and the buckets and whatnot, and all of a sudden I noticed there was a car that drove up this side street. And this wasn't any normal car that I was used to seeing. It was a sports car, cherry red, convertible, top-down, and the reason I looked up to see the car was because I could hear the engine. It was one of those engines that was just naturally, whoa, 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 you know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, oh my, this thing is going to get you somewhere, you know? So the car pulled up to the stop sign, and of course, what happened? What was I doing? I was staring at this vehicle. I was just gawking at this car. And that's true. It's true. What happened is that I was obsessed with looking at this vehicle and imagining what I could do in that thing. But let me tell you something else. Not only do you need to know what happened, which I was gawking out this vehicle, but you need to know what was really happening. Here's what was really happening. As I was rinsing out the brushes and my eyes began to look up at this car, the hose, for some reason, followed suit with my eyes. 
So I actually started soaking the car and the guy who was driving the vehicle. I was just spraying him down because I was staring at this car. And he got so mad, and that actually makes the story even better. Because he pulled up the stop sign, and I'm just dousing him. And all of a sudden, he just guns it and turns right and is like, ah! you know, screeching out, like spinning out, fishtailing in the road, and took off, which... That was better than just looking at the car is to see what it could do, right? Look, there, there are things that we have to think about in life where we look at what happened, but then we really find out what was really happening. Does that make sense? What happened is that I was staring at the car, absolutely true. But what was also happening is that I was soaking that guy. And I was getting, oh, it, was embar- it was really embarrassing after the fact. When we look at this in Revelation 12, I need you to understand that we're going to look at what happened and also what is really happening here, okay? Does that make sense? That's where we're going this morning. So we're going to jump in. Look at what is happening. So in the first six verses, John identifies three characters for us. There is a woman. There is a serpent or a red dragon. And then there is a child, right? The woman is pregnant. She is great with child. It says in the text that she has these birth pains. She is agonizing over giving birth. Those of you that have given birth know about this. And not to minimize what you've been through, I just want to reset reality for a moment. Not minimizing your pain. In the first century, I don't know that epidurals existed. Not that every one of you had it. I'm just saying whatever pain you had, which is absolutely real, imagine if you had to give birth without the ability of having any ability to take uh, any type of pain reduction at all. This woman was giving birth and feeling all of the pain that is associated with it. And this red dragon is right there waiting for the child to be born. Because what does he want to do? Look at the text. He wants to devour the child. But guess what? The child is born. And he does not devour the child. Now, real quick, does this sound familiar? This is not quite the Christmas story that most of us hear and think about, is it? Here's a woman who's giving birth to this son, as the text says, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's quoting Psalm 2 to say, my child is going to rule the earth. Who else is that other than Jesus? This is telling us the true story of Christmas. Here's what happened and here's what's really happening. The great enemy, the dragon himself, Satan himself, wants to devour this child. That means when you read in the gospel accounts of Herod wanting to wipe out the little boys that were two and younger, that is a manifestation of Satan himself and evil and darkness wanting to wipe out Jesus. That's just the first six verses. And if you're thinking, man, I need a little more detail about this, well... Verses 7 through 17 tell the exact same story, just with more color, 
more context. So on your canvas, in your mind, I hope that you have been able to think about a pregnant woman who's about to give birth. I hope that you've been able to draw a great red dragon. And I hope you've been able to draw this beautiful child that was born that the dragon wasn't able to touch so that his plans were thwarted. 7 through 17, tell us the same story again with just more depth. So you get to add more things onto the canvas. So let's go through this, verses 7 through 17. And this is where John starts. Hey, way back, there was a war in heaven. That's how verse 7 starts, right? There was a war in heaven. And there was this this serpent, this dragon, which we find out in verses 7 and following, that this is actually the devil. This is Satan himself. And he was at war in heaven, and he lost. He didn't win. So he was kicked out of heaven. Remember the angel of light that we saw falling in previous chapters? Yeah, we're just learning about that again. Here, Satan was kicked out of heaven, and he came to earth. And why did he come to earth? to wreak havoc everywhere, to cause destruction everywhere, to deceive people, to try to gobble up Christ and devour him, to squelch him, smash him, get rid of him. But it didn't happen. So what did he do? Well, because he couldn't kill the baby, he decided that he would go after the offspring of the woman. She gave birth. She ends up going out into the wilderness We find, which we'll talk about more in a minute, that she was there and she was preserved and nourished, but the enemy, the dragon, came after her offspring. And it specifies toward the end of verse 15, 16, and 17 that he was pursuing those who were living by the reality of her son, that were proclaiming him and obeying God. In other words, their lives were defined by what she gave birth to, her son, Jesus, to say this evil serpent is now coming after the followers of this man, this child that he couldn't kill, the followers of Christ. That's what's going on in this chapter. Follow that? How's your canvas? Got some things to imagine and put on there? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, now let's think together about the whole thing of so what? What difference does this make in my life? If this is what was really happening at the birth of Christ, and actually this is what really happened when he was, Satan himself was kicked out of heaven, and this is what he's been doing for a long, long time, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? Well, let's start with a general observation. And then we'll get to good news, uh, to bad news and good news, all right? So that's where we're going. General observation. This is the best time that I knew to say this. I couldn't say it at the front of the series because it wouldn't make sense. But this, I hope, is the moment where it will make the most sense to you. Revelation is not written in chronological order. You can't interpret it that way. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, remember? He was exiled there and wrote this book down, the visions that he received, somewhere between the 70s and the early 90s of the first century. John writes this vision 
which is about something that occurred chronologically 90 years before chapters 1 through 10, 1 through 11. You get it? When you come to the book of Revelation, the question is not what happens next. The question is always what does John see next? What do we get to see next? The book is not written chronologically. It's a picture book to put things together. Second, so let's go to some bad news. And when I say bad news, what I really want you to hear is what is true, okay? So we're going to look at bad news, but I really want you to receive this as what is true. So here's the first one. What is this passage teaching us? Why is this relevant to my life? What difference does it make? Well, here's what's true, and it may sound bad, but it's true, so we got to live by this. Satan himself has been behind all the opposition that is to God that has ever happened in the history of the world. All the famine, all of the disease, the plagues, persecution of God's people, trying to take out Jesus at his birth. Satan has been behind all of the opposition to God for the his, forever, for the history of ever. He's been behind it, and he's been active, and he's been doing every single thing he can to bring down God all the time. That's what he's been doing. So that means everything we've read up to this point, especially in the previous chapters about the seals and the trumpets and even what we'll get to with the bowls, we need to understand that our enemy is very, very active and he's dangerous and he wants to bring down truth and God and he wants to kill God and he wants to kill his people. You just got to take that in. It's just true. It's not the best news to hear. It's kind of bad news to hear, but it's true. Second, if you will, look at verse 12. The end of verse 12 tells you something super profound. He knows that his time is short. See that? Satan himself knows that his time is short. Do you hear that? I'm going to say it again. Satan knows that his time is short. Do you? He knows he's limited. Do you know that he's limited? He knows that he is not able to accomplish what he wants. Do you know that? Do you live like that? When you see evil happening in the world, and there's plenty of it to see, is your instinctive response to think, oh, evil is real, but it never will get the last word? Are you instinctively there yet? I'm not always instinctively there yet. When you see darkness happening and darkness seeming to advance in the world, are you instinctively thinking, yes, this is true, and I can sympathize and empathize, I can grieve, I can be angry, but my God is going to pull out sin by the root. Is that your instinctive response yet? It's not always mine. 
Satan knows he is limited. Do you act like he is? Or are you obsessed with where you see evil and darkness advancing? And where you think you see evil and darkness advancing, you begin to form your life based upon where you think you see evil and darkness advancing. Because you see a threat, you see a change, and you think, oh, I've got to do this. Remember this from last week? We have a tendency to be obsessed with what is unstable. Satan is always going to be out trying to bring down God and truth. He's always going to be after God's people. And it is what that is always going to be absolutely unstable. There's only one thing that's invincible, and that is the gospel. That is Jesus. That is his church. And beloved, we have got to stop being obsessed with where we, with where we think evil is advancing, and we need to be obsessed with Christ and his kingdom. Because evil is always going to be trying to advance, and it is limited. It does not have the power to overcome Christ and his church. So why are we focusing on it? Why? Why are our plans almost always a reaction to where we think we see evil advancing? Why? Why can't we be more proactive in following what Christ says about his church and being excited about proclaiming the gospel and excited about living out the gospel and excited about planting churches and excited about his kingdom? Why? I don't have a great answer. But I do think a lot of it has to do with our comfort. We just like being comfortable. And every time we think we see evil advancing, what we interpret that as is a threat to our comfort instead of focusing on Christ. And we're so distracted. Third, about bad news that's really truth, is what we see in this text are the tactics of our enemy. The tactics. I'm going to hit these briefly. One of them we're going to spend more time on. One of his tactics and how he uh, operates is death. That's one of his weapons. He loves to try to kill, right? Did it in the garden, tried to do it with Jesus' birth, tries to throw it in our face all the time as much as we want to ignore it. Death is a weapon. Death is a tactic. Second, deception. Says he's deceiver of the world. He loves to deceive. And trust me, the deception is super subtle. It's not that he knocks on your door and says, hi, I'm the devil, I'm here to deceive you. So let me get very specific so you know what I'm talking about relative to the book of Revelation. This is how he deceives people like us. If you think that the book of Revelation is a predominantly about sin, predominantly about evil, predominantly about Satan, and you become so obsessed with that, that your view of the book of Revelation is that it's predominantly about evil advancing and darkness and things getting really, really hard and difficult. And then at the very end, Jesus swoops in and saves the day. You are deceived. What does God have to do to convince people like you and me that sin is limited, that the devil is obstructed, and that he, God, wins. What is it? 
Because everything we've looked at up to this point is communicating to us over and over and over that the throne is real. That the work of Christ is real. And that the devil, he's already been kicked out of heaven. He couldn't kill Jesus. And he can't stop the church. No government can kill the church. No plague can kill the church. No persecution can kill the church. No culture can stop the church. No pandemic can kill the church. No false teaching can kill the church. He can't win. Don't be deceived. This book is about your Savior and his kingdom. And even though evil will advance, true, it will never prevail. And Jesus' plan is not to scoop in at the last moment and secretly take us out of here. Deception. It's not right. It's not true at all. Don't be deceived. The third tactic he uses is the one that we need to spend a little more time on because it's the one that's the hardest for us, at least the hardest for me, accusation. Twice in these verses, it talks about how Satan accuses God's people day and night. See that? Oh, man, this, this is the tactic that's really hard. This is the tactic that we really have to do battle with. If you're outside of Christ and you're here this morning and you're thinking about Christianity or exploring it, this is how the devil accuses you. And it may not sound like any accusation, but I'll tell you the message of accusation. You don't need God. You can do it on your own. You don't need him. Make up your own way of life. Create your own identity. Define for yourself what's right and wrong. It's what he said in the garden. It's what he said in the garden. You don't need God. If you're exploring Christianity, that's how he accuses you. He accuses you by making you think that you don't need God. And that you're fine just the way things are. It's great. Be good. Be nice. Well, he loves that message. If you're in Christ, this is where he accuses you among many places. He will accuse you with the identity that you have in Jesus. Remember what Jesus has done is he's paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future. He's given you a righteousness that you can't improve upon. And it's given to you freely. The thing that we kind of get bored with a lot, the thing we're like, yeah, yeah, I know. Now let's get on to obedience. No, that's exactly what Satan wants us to do. He doesn't want us to revel in the identity that we have in Christ. So he attacks it. And we don't think about it much because we just want to get on with what do I need to do? See, this is taking the gospel deeper into your life and living by the gospel, not just thinking Jesus got me in and now I just need to get busy obeying. Satan will attack us with our identity in Jesus. And he does it in this way. You're not really good enough. You certainly aren't what you're supposed to be given who Jesus is for you. Ever had that experience that? You're, you're, you're not what God says that you are in Christ. I mean, just look at your life. And that has all kinds of forms. It takes all kinds of shape, right? It's those of us that grew up in homes thinking that I never could be what my dad or my mom or my grandparents or my coach or my teacher, fill in the blank, wanted me to be. Never been good enough for fill in the blank. 
You ever felt that? Accusations. It's how Satan is continuing to get in your head and make you think what Christ has done for you really isn't enough because you're still not measuring up. I heard a song recently that had this lyric. Every night, my mind likes to talk about everything I'm not. And even worse, everything I am. Does that relate to you? You get in a quiet place, does that voice in your head start talking about everything you're not? Or even worse, everything you are? For me, to be very personal with you, this is how the accusations of my enemy have worked out in my life. This is one way. Those of you that have been around for a little while have heard me say this before. I don't say it a lot, but I need to say it periodically because it helps me fight against this stuff. When I was in kindergarten, my kindergarten teacher made fun of a project we were doing and called me retarded in front of the entire class. And everyone laughed. Do you know how much that stuck with me? I'm 45 and it still bothers me. That's happened for me in middle school. That happened in high school. That happened in undergrad. That happened in grad school. Not to tell you examples all along the way, but to tell you this one, another one. When I was in grad school, I had a professor for multiple classes. And outside of the first exam, outside of the first exam that I turned in, every other test, every other exam, every other paper I turned into him, he wrote a note and gave me back every exam and every paper with a note that said, Dave, if you can't express yourself any better than this, I don't think you should go into the ministry. Now that's hard to hear. But when you have in the back of your mind what happened in undergrad, high school, and kindergarten, I've got all kinds of issues of not measuring up, of Christ's righteousness in my head, but not how I function. So yeah, I got real problems in my life. I have a hard time taking compliments because I don't know what to do with it. But man, I want to be encouraged. What about you? What's the accuser been saying to you? Because you do realize it goes both directions, right? It's not just the hard things that we deal with in life that our accuser says, yeah, see, you don't measure up. You're not good enough. It goes the other way too. It goes the other way of presuming upon all of the blessings that we have received and just not known it. In other words, we're kind of deceived into thinking that my life has been a certain way just because I really deserve this. The accuser works both ways. He works in our struggles and in the difficult things and trials in our life, and he works with the blessings that we have received, the ones that we oftentimes want to assume deep down that we just deserved it. I'll try to make that more clear. Remember the story of Joseph? Here's a guy that 
as a teenage boy, was sold by his brothers. And then they concocted this plan to show their dad that he was actually dead. He got attacked. He was sold. Sold as a teenager. Went to a completely different culture. And then ended up in jail for something that he didn't do. Remember that? Can you imagine the voices that are operating in his head? Can you imagine the struggles that he had to deal with? Being abandoned by his family, being all alone, being thrown in jail for something that he didn't do? Do you think he had voices in his head saying that he was never good enough? Come on. On the other end, what about Timothy? This guy in the New Testament, this guy that Paul talks about, this guy that had his mom and grandmother teach him the gospel? My goodness, he lived a privileged life, didn't he? He had his mom and his grandmother who taught him the gospel from an early age. And more than that, guess who his mentor was? Paul. This gigantic figure in the first century was his mentor that would write to the churches where Timothy pastored and said, hey, y'all, don't you despise Timothy because he's young. Can you imagine that? Now, I'm not saying that Timothy, that we have evidence that Timothy presumed upon all those blessings that he received. Neither am I saying that Joseph didn't overcome the things that he went through. The point was, God is a work. It took an extraordinary act of grace for Joseph to say at the end of his life to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. That is unbelievable. Isn't it? Jesus took whatever accusations, Joseph took whatever accusations he had to Jesus and to grace. And those who have been blessed, how many times do we just live as if it just, it's just the way it's supposed to be? And we forget that we don't deserve a single blessing. And yet how much we presume upon them. And deep down, we really think that we deserve it. We did something to earn that, to live in it. So we did the right thing, said the right thing, knew the right people. Beloved, what are you going to do with these accusations? Put a pin in that. Here's the good news for you. This is the greatest Christmas story we could ever hear because it's got the birth of Jesus it's got Good Friday, it's got the joy of Easter Sunday, and we end up at the throne. Look at verse 5 and verse 10. John gives us this quick little hint. The baby was born and he ended up being caught up to God into the throne. Then verse 10 works it out. So what are we doing? We're celebrating that Jesus is on the throne. It's not someday that he will get there, it's that he's there. The present reality that he is reigning. This is a tremendous story, a tremendous Christmas story because it's got everything in it. Secondly, this. The wilderness and exile is a place of protection and growth. We can only touch on this briefly. The woman was taken into the wilderness. Around verse 6 and 14, it tells you that. And it was there that she received nourishment. It even says that she's there for a definitive period of time. Now, this whole thing 
is marinated in Old Testament imagery and language. It's talking about the imagery of being in the wilderness, not yet arriving home, where God provides daily manna, where God provides protection, where God was constantly nourishing his people. Beloved, we are living in exile now. We, in a sense, are in the wilderness. We're not home yet. And home ultimately is coming to us. Heaven and earth reunited. New Jerusalem coming down. We confessed it earlier. That means that in our exile, we ought to expect there to be opposition. We ought to assume it. We ought to expect to see evil and darkness advance. We ought to assume it. But we will always be nourished by God, even if we die. The wilderness and exile is a place of growth. And finally, what do, we, what do we do with these accusations? It says right there in the text, think around verse 10, we overcome through the blood. Notice that? And let me tell you, I am so happy that it doesn't say we overcome through our faith because I would hear that and what I would say is all the struggles that I have with my accusations is because I don't believe enough. And if I just believed more, and if I was just stronger in my faith, I would be able to deal with the accusations. And so I would turn that into focusing on faith as a work, and that I just need to get stronger and I need to get better. But it doesn't say that. It says we overcome through the blood. Which means that Jesus' death and resurrection is the only way to overcome these accusations of the enemy. And that means that Jesus' blood is stronger than whether I'm smart or not. That the blood of Jesus is greater than what I've accomplished or my greatest failings. It means the blood of Jesus is greater than the most challenging struggles I've ever had and it is greater than all of the blessings that I presume upon that I might not even know it. And that works into me, humility and confidence. Humility because my life ain't about me. And my accomplishments aren't really about me. And my failings don't really define me. And my intellect, or lack thereof, doesn't define me. And it gives me confidence, because Christ does. And his gospel is invincible. And his kingdom will not fail. And he will, he will be all in all one day. <laughs>